I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Luke chapter 14. We commenced a study of the 14th chapter of Luke a few weeks ago. We come to its conclusion today. Follow with me as I read verses 25 through 35. Now great multitudes were going along with him, that is with Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks terms of peace. So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but, or if, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Sober words are these, are they not? We might even wonder how can they come from the gracious lips of our Savior? Well, we meet in our Lord's teaching both encouraging words of welcome and stern words of warning. Sometimes in the same context, Truths that seem opposed to one another, that might even seem to contradict one another, that don't seem to make sense. For example, when we read in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus delighting and praising God for his absolute sovereignty in salvation, hiding the truth from the, from the wise and the prudent, and showing it, revealing it unto babes. And then right after that display of Jesus' glory in the salvation of God, you have him calling to all the weary and heavy laden that they might come to him and find rest. You have together God's absolute sovereignty and salvation, and then you have the free and the indiscriminate offer of the gospel with not a break in between. And we've seen this here in the 14th chapter of Luke's gospel. We looked at the, the uh, banquet, the great banquet that speaks about the glorious salvation that Christ came to bring. That all men were to be invited, indeed compelled to come to Jesus, that they might feast upon him and feed their souls and live. Indiscriminate offer of the gospel to go out to all men and then following right upon it, seemingly a stern word in calling men to cross-bearing discipleship. So we have these two things set together before us here in Luke chapter 14. And so we're going to consider the terms of Jesus' call to discipleship. We're going to look at five 
five headings here this morning and then come to some concluding application. We're going to look at the instructive occasion of Jesus' teaching on the terms of Christian discipleship. And then we're going to consider Jesus' staggering statement of these terms. We're going to look at his illustrations of a careless assessment of the terms of Christian discipleship. Then we're going to ponder Jesus' reassertion of the unconditional commitment required in Christian discipleship. And then finally, Jesus' striking parable against apostasy, which concludes his teaching on the terms of discipleship. Oh, and may God give us ears to hear these things this morning, a tender heart to receive them, and obedient feet to walk in light of them. Notice first then from verse 25 of Luke 14, the instructive occasion of Jesus' teaching on the terms of Christian discipleship. Now great multitudes were going along with him and he turned and said to them. Well, the occasion of Jesus' teaching here seems to have been his final journey to Jerusalem. If this is so, the great multitudes then would have been the converging groups of Jewish pilgrims journeying for the Passover who joined Jesus into one great crowd around him as he's closing in on Jerusalem. Many would have been wondering, is this carpenter's son from Nazareth, is he the promised Messiah? And if so, is the kingdom of God soon to arrive? Because they knew when the Messiah came, the kingdom of God would come. According to Jewish expectation, these things would happen. And is this the man? Is this kingdom that's going to come? Is this the one that we've been looking for? And of course, their conception of the kingdom of God was different than Jesus, as we shall see. They believed that, that Messiah would bring in earthly splendor and blessedness for the people of God, and it would be a time of ease. But we hear an expression of this expectation in the words of the man of the banquet. Blessed is everyone who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Is this kingdom coming? Is this blessed bread soon to be dispensed by the Messiah? Indeed, we saw how when he dispensed bread there to the multitude from a few loaves and fishes, what we don't read in Matthew 14, we read in John chapter 6, that they thought this is the Messiah, but he's bringing a welfare kingdom. And we're going to come back and we're going to continue to eat from his hand. But the kingdom of heaven Jesus inaugurated and the life to which Jesus calls his disciples is utterly opposed to these rosy notions. These would-be disciples possess no right understanding of the commitment and self-denial which serving the Messiah would require of them. And so what we see here in the end of Luke chapter 14 is Jesus' reality check. He exposes their false notions to the radical nature of Christian discipleship in the present unfolding of the kingdom of God. And so that's the instructive occasion of Jesus' teaching. Notice, secondly, Jesus' staggering statement of the terms of Christian discipleship. These we read in verses 26 and 27. Now, when you read your New Testament, you don't have to read very far before you see that Jesus uttered some hard sayings. His striking words may seem at times to contradict his other more gentler instruction, but we will see that our Lord's striking words on this occasion, they are not harsh, but ultimately they are kind. He intends to remove any false notions we must, we, that we might have of the Christian life. And instead, what we should expect if we follow him as his disciples. Consider first Christ's audience. He's speaking here to ordinary people interested in becoming his disciples. 
He's seen, they've seen his miracles. They've seen his mercy and grace. They want to join with the believing disciples. And in addressing them, he's not pre presenting any requirements for super disciples, but what he requires of all of his followers. This level of commitment is required on the front end for all would-be disciples. It's not reserved late for later for more mature followers. He earlier addressed a wide-eyed disciple wannabe with the cost and rigors of true discipleship. Luke chapter 9, if you're there in your Bibles in 14, turn back to Luke 9. If you have the handout, it's in the notes. Luke 9, verses 57 through 62. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, that is to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Consider also the immediate context of Jesus' statement here in Luke. As we noted in the parable of the great feast, the Lord had just made an unqualified appeal to come to him, sending out his steward to compel them to come in. And the connection of this gracious gospel call to salvation with his sober instruction on discipleship seems to be this. All who come to the banquet of salvation must understand the terms of discipleship and what it means to follow Jesus. We have feasted upon his grace. What does it now mean to follow him? Notice, first of all, answering this question, Jesus must occupy unrivaled priority in our affections or we cannot be his disciple. We must not understand what our Lord here is teaching. Look at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This sounds rather radical and it sounds contradictory to the loving words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's obviously not teaching that his disciples must hate their family members. Cults abuse Jesus' words to teach this. Indeed, if Jesus was teaching this, he would be contradicting the law of God, especially he would be contradicting the fifth commandment that commands us to be respectful and to love our family members. He'd be overthrowing our duty indeed to love all men. The apostles never turned away from their families when they engaged in serving Christ. Yes, they had to leave. James and John left their father Zebedee with the nets. But they never hated them when they took up the cross to follow Christ. Indeed, many of the apostles, Peter in particular, is spoken of as having taken his wife along with him. And we may assume even that children were with the disciples, though it's not plainly stated in the Bible. So what is Jesus here commanding of his disciples? We've got to get this right. Simply stated, he's commanding us to love him supremely. Indeed, above all other persons, even above those who are nearest and dearest to us. There must be no rival. Here's Jesus' point. We must love him supremely. So great must our love for Jesus be that our love for all other persons, including our love for our beloved family members, will seem like hatred in comparison. 
that we love him so much. Indeed, I dare say we will not love our family members as we ought unless we love Jesus primarily first and foremost. This means that we must choose rather to offend loved ones rather than our Lord when their will and our will crosses his will. Listen to Spurgeon. Christ must be first. Here he claims the highest place in every human breast. We are conscious that the Son of God has a right to speak thus, and only he. We must earnestly beware of making idols of our dearest ones by loving them more than Jesus. We must never set them near the throne of our King. We are not worthy to dwell with Christ above, nor even to be associated with him here if we judge any earthly object to be worthy to rival the Lord Jesus. Father and mother, son and daughter, we would do anything to please them, but as opposed to Jesus, they stand nowhere and cannot for an instant be allowed to come in the way of our supreme loyalty to our Lord. This kind of unqualified commitment to Christ must be evident when we come to Christ. If anyone comes to me, Jesus is saying. Not if after a while you follow me, you decide these things. No, when we come to him. And though the detailed implications of committed discipleship become clearer over time, the heart of a true disciple when he comes to Jesus must be irreversibly bent toward Christ right at the very front end of the Christian life. That's what Jesus is saying. Surrender to Christ and submission to his will must be the basic operating principle of our lives as Christian disciples. Not my will, not the will of others, but thine be done. Jesus is not asking of his disciples anything beyond what the Father asks of him. In other words, his loving submission to his Father is the pattern for our submission to Jesus. John 14, in verse 31, Jesus says, I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. And just a few hours later, Jesus submitted to the will of the Father after saying this, and he submitted to the will of the Father and dying upon the cross for his people. Jesus says to us, if you love me, what? You'll keep my commandments. Further, Jesus possesses a special family love for his believing, obedient disciples. Indeed, he regards them, he regards us, if we are his true disciples, he regards us as his spiritual family. It's an amazing thing. You remember the occasion in Matthew 12, verses 47 through 50, and someone said to him, that is to Jesus, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But he answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers forever, for whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Understand that a desire to demonstrate loving obedience to Christ will be met at times with resistance and sometimes with painful backlash from those that we dearly love when Christ's will crosses their will as revealed in his word. And I know some of you have experienced personally the cost of principled loving obedience to Christ in terms of family harmony. Notice finally under this point that Christ's command for unrivaled love and allegiance extends farther than family. This is where the rub really comes. It extends to our chief rival to obeying the will of God, and that is to ourselves. We are to hate ourselves, Jesus says. We are to love Christ 
so supremely that our love for ourselves, which is basic, will seem like hatred. We must not allow love for ourselves to crowd out our chief love for Christ. And brethren, that is a battle we must fight every day. A proper hatred of self is the most flesh-withering, but the most necessary hatred of God. It opposes nature. What does Paul say in Ephesians 5.21, 9, excuse me. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Love of self is assumed in the first of the two great commandments, and it is patent in the second. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. By nature, we love and serve ourselves before anyone else. Each of us, you see, was born with this mantra on our lips. Not your will, not God's will, but my will will prevail. For a non-Christian, God doesn't even make his priority list. Here's the point. Only when Christ overcomes our self-love by his grace are we enabled to love him supremely. And I would suggest going back to family love, that it is often, is it not, self-love that makes us slow to cross the will of family members when their will crossed the will of Christ? We're looking out for ourselves, oftentimes. We find it easier to offend Christ than to offend family. And natively, we love ourselves first, family second, and others third. You see, only when we love Christ supremely will we begin to put his will before our will. And until then, we are slaves to self-love and self-will. The distracting effects of remaining sin requires us to continually renew our supreme love for and recalibrate our chief commitment to Christ. We have to go to him again and again and again. Jesus said in another place, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now our glorious Lord is our perfect model of selfless love and submission. Jesus' love of the Father compelled him to submit himself to bearing the cursed cross to pay for our sins. Our Lord's submission to and love for his Father comes to a passionate and appointed climax in his garden prayer before going to the cross, and we all know it. We, we can't begin to understand the depths of it. Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but thine be done. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. And let us notice next a second condition. Not only must Christ occupy unrivaled priority in our affections or we cannot be his disciple, we must be willing to suffer hardship for our association with Jesus or we cannot be his disciple. Verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Like savior, like disciple, Jesus is saying. Well, what does it mean? What does he mean when he says we must carry our own cross if we would be his disciple? Well, the picture of cross bearing is quite sobering. Notice a few things. First of all, the cross is a graphic picture of injury and loss. The loss of all outward things, it spares nothing. Christ was bereft of all things, even his own clothes as he was nailed naked to 
the cross. If we're not willing to leave all to follow Christ, Jesus says, we are not worthy of him or to bear the name of Christian. Secondly, the cross speaks of shame and reproach. It's the emblem of suffering and shame, says the hymn, the old rugged cross. Cursed, says the Old Testament law, is anyone who is hanged upon a tree. The cross puts dis disgraceful suffering on display. Only the vilest of the vile were nailed to a cross, our Savior being numbered among them falsely. Not even the lowliest free Romans suffered death on a cross, only slaves and fugitives. The expression in Hebrews, bearing his reproach, going outside of the city and bearing his reproach in Hebrews 13 speaks of us identifying with our cross-bearing Lord. He was hated and despised, and we must also be if we're going to associate with him. We don't truly come to Christ if we are not willing to suffer, our, suffer for our identification with him, not just in his glory, but in his humiliation. Thirdly, the cross depicts pain and torture. The cross inflicted the most horrific suffering imaginable. Ancient writers called the cross the extremity of torture and the most cruel and horrid suffering. And when Ignatius was going to be exposed to the fury of wild beasts for bearing the name of Christ, he cried, now I begin to be a disciple. We must possess the same disposition ourselves by the grace of God. Fourthly, the cross signifies death itself. Cruelty reaches its zenith with the cross. The cross was the last thing that could be suffered. It inflicted the worst kind of death. And so we must die to self. We must die to this world. So what does it mean that Christians must bear a cross? Well, simply it means to count the cost and be willing to pay the ultimate price for following Christ. We noted that Jesus requires us to shoulder our cross daily. He teaches that there is no such thing as part-time discipleship. Bearing our cross speaks of unwavering resolution. Bearing the cross means that we must be prepared for whatever comes in following our crucified Lord. And it means to be ready should the figurative cross that we bear become literal in laying down our life for our identification with Jesus Christ. And brethren, this is going on all over the world right now. We're in a safe bubble here in the United States. That bubble may burst one day. Therefore, we, we today have very little concept of what it means to suffer shame for the name of Christ. Jesus says that we are no disciple unless we, if need be, are willing to follow him to death. So how do we rightly bear our cross? Well, first, we must bear our cross cheerfully. This seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? But by the grace of God, we may bear our cross cheerfully. Simon the Cyrene was compelled to bear Christ's cross. Happier are we if we bear but do not drag our cross. Remember, it was the joy set before him that he endured the cross. We need his grace so to do. Second, we must bear our cross patiently. This patience is not the patience of non-Christians who drearily resign themselves to fate, but rather it is quiet submission to the hand of God, a submission that enables us to even kiss the cross. And finally, we must bear the cross productively. That is, let us make use of the cross of Christ. 
as God's final means of perfecting us in the image of the one who purchased us at the cost of his cross. The cross that saves also sanctifies. We are made richer in grace and better fitted for glory by the very instrument Christ purchased our salvation with. Our cross humbles us. It weans us from this world, even as it prepares us for the world to come. What does the Apostle Paul say? May it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Notice thirdly, we've seen the instructive occasion and in the staggering statement of the terms of Christian discipleship. Notice Jesus' illustrations of a careless assessment of the terms of Christian discipleship in verses 28 through 32 for the interest of time. You can read them. I don't have time to read them now again. Jesus illustrates the terms required of true discipleship with two instructive pictures. In the first, he presents the Christian life as a building project that must be completed. And in the second, he presents it as a war that must be won. Common sense teaches us that any successful building project or victorious warfare demands foresight and prudent planning. If you're going to build a house, you've got to think of what you need. You've got to think what it's going to cost you to build it. Do you have enough money to pay for all of those things? Or are you going to get halfway done and you don't have siding on your house? Yeah, well, the windows are going to come one of these days. No, you have to think about what it's going to cost you. Be ready to pay it, pay it, and then put your house up. And going to war, you better be sure that you can defeat your enemy with the forces that you have. How much more important is this with Christian discipleship? You see, what Jesus is implying here is that we are doomed from the start to fail in finishing our pilgrimage if we enter the Christian life haphazardly, without thinking about it, just running full bore into it. We must determine right from the start that we have the funds to finish the building and the forces to win the war. Cross-bearing discipleship, he says, will cost you everything. It calls us to lifelong warfare that must be won. Brethren, Jesus presents the Christian life as not being easy, but as being hard. Certainly, it's impossible without the grace of God, but it is hard even with the grace of God. Providential storms will rise. It will beat, beat us down. Sins and temptations abound from within and from without that must be conquered. Detours from the pilgrim pathway meet us on the right and on the left all the way. If we would persevere, we must remember banquet blessings we have in Christ and continually feed upon him. That's the only way we're going to be sustained. You see, we are made more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us, but fight we must. We must spend and be spent. You see, only he that begun that good work in us will enable us to complete it. But we must wage continual war, fighting with his mighty resources, not in the flesh, but in the power of God. This is how we fight the good fight of faith to the finish, how we keep the course, how we don't turn away. And how do we do so? With our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Here's the point. If we fail to count the cost right from the beginning, we will not be prepared to pay the price. We will not persevere. Then we will be ridiculed as those who went on a fool's errand. What was he thinking when he went to follow Christ? He, he's back again. We will bring reproach upon ourselves for quitting our profession of Christ. You remember the 
character pliable in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. He and obstinate, you remember from the beginning, they ventured out with Christian when he first left on pilgrimage, both obstinate and pliable, tried to force Christian at the beginning to return to the city of destruction, but unlike obstinate, who returned shortly afterward, pliable continued with Christian for a short distance because he was intrigued by Christian's description of heaven. He wanted to have a part in that. But after getting mired in the slough of despond, pliable decides, hey, this journey just is not worth it. I don't want the troubles. I've had enough. And so what does he do? He returns home. He goes back to the city of destruction. But notice that pliable isn't received with a hero's welcome. But his friends back in the city of destru destruction, they reprove him. They look down their noses at him. Listen to the ensuing discussion between faithful and Christian after they observe him returning home. Faithful. Since his return, he has been greatly derided, and that by all kinds of people. Some mock and despise him, and few will put him to work. He is now seven times worse than if he had never gone out of the city. Christian, but why should they be so set against him since they also despise the way that he forsook? Wouldn't they consider him a wise man for going back? Faithful, oh, they say, hang him. He's a turncoat. He was not true to his profession. I think God has stirred up even his enemies to hiss at him and make him a proverb because he has forsaken the way. They expected him to start out and keep going. They didn't agree with what he was doing, but they expected him to keep going. Professing Christians who return to the world, they cast mud on the name of Christ, and in so doing, they sully themselves. They're regarded as weak and vacillating, untrustworthy. And according to the reckoning of Christ, better never to have begun the Christian pilgrimage than to have begun not to finish. And that brings us to Jesus' reassertion of the unconditional commitment required in Christian discipleship. Jesus reaffirms the radical nature of true discipleship in verse 33. <clears throat> so therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. This word give up is an old Greek word which means to renounce, it means to forsake, it means to set apart as in a military camp. You've signed up, you're set apart now. The form of the verb suggests one who separates himself from others who says goodbye to them, even as we saw in Luke chapter 9. Jesus says that a true Christian willingly gives up all to follow him, holding back nothing with a view to gaining everything. To borrow the famous Jim Elliott quote, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Notice that Jesus' command is universal. It's not just for missionaries or for those who wish to be super saints. Jesus' command is for all who come to him. It, it admits of no exceptions. Everyone who comes to Christ must be willing to lay down everything, if necessary, to follow him. Spurgeon says, what martyrs have actually done, we must be willing to do, or we have not the grace of God in us. So we have to ask ourselves, do we mean what we saying earlier, Jesus, I, my cross, have taken all to leave and follow thee. And notice very briefly before coming to an abiding word of application, Jesus' striking parable against apostasy, which concludes his teaching on the terms of Christian discipleship in verses 34 and 35. 
These are frightening words with which Jesus closes this section. It is impossible to make salt that has lost its savor salty again. You can't re-salt salt. Once it's lost its savor, it can't be renewed. And those who profess to be salt, the salt of the earth, who later lose their saltiness, prove themselves, Jesus says, to be useless for anything. You can't use it in your garden. You can't use it for making pavement. You just throw it out and trample it underfoot in the street. And Jesus says such ones will be cast out. He states the same warning using different imagery in John 15 and verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. It is precisely at this point that the stony ground hearer scuttled his profession. You see, he seemed to start out well. It was when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Brethren, what Jesus is teaching is that his disciples lay down their cross only when they graduate to glory. So what does it say to us by way of an abiding message? Five things, I try to be, I'll try to be brief and quick. Jesus teaches that the goal of Christian ministry is not to accumulate fickle seekers, but to enlist faithful followers. Jesus' goal in building his church was never to swell its ranks with the half-hearted, but to enlist only the whole-hearted. Not to register decisions, but to make disciples. Our Lord does not settle for quantity. He aims at quality. His message and method of calling and making disciples, therefore, is utterly out of sympathy with the easy believism and the seeker-sensitive Christianity of our day. The gate is narrow, few there be that find it. Bless his name that his yoke is easy, because he helps us bear it, but it is still a yoke to be borne. His burden is light because of his assistance, but it is still a burden to be carried. There's not a syllable of Jesus' call to discipleship intended for the careless, the compromised, or the uncommitted. The call to discipleship is not simply to try Jesus or for those who wish to take Christianity for a test drive like we do when shopping for a used car. True discipleship is radically opposed to this kind of take-it-or-leave-it recreational Christianity common in our day. Ask those who come to Jesus in Afghanistan or North Korea or Nigeria if this is their view of Christian discipleship. They know the cost right up front. They are sure that it is through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We know it in the abstract. They know it in the concrete. They lay their necks on the line when they shoulder Jesus' cross. Yet cross-bearing discipleship does come with what I suggest are painful pleasures that few of us know anything about. How many of us have experienced the blessing of being considered worthy to suffer shame for his name? Our crucified Lord knew the joy set before him. And the author to the Hebrews writes about the destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated whom he regarded as men of whom the world was not worthy. May we, by God's grace, to prove ourselves to be men and women of that stamp. Secondly, more briefly, cross-bearing, a cross-bearing life will be a gospel-centered life. It must be. The cross must be ever before us. It must be precious to us. We must be willing to sacrifice all for it. So the Christian life is to be a cross-fixated life, and a cross-fixated life will be subject 
will subject us to ridicule before the world because the cross is the emblem of suffering and shame. It is regarded as folly before the world. You're following his crucified Savior? His blood can't do you any good, me any good. How does Paul put it? 1 Corinthians 1.21 For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. You see, the word and the way of the cross is its own reward and encouragement. We must let go of the world if we're going to cling to the cross, if we're going to glory in his message before the world. You see, the world's great hatred and its only hope is the cross of Christ. Thirdly, the message of the gospel involves more than freely offering Jesus to sinners. It also involves pressing upon them the cost of following him. David refused to offer God that which cost him nothing. Cross-bearing costs Christ everything, and so it must cost Christians. We must be willing and ready to lay down our lives if necessary in following him. I fear that many would-be disciples romanticize the Christian life. They view being a Christian like a wide-eyed young man sitting before a recruiter, how he views a soldier's life. He thinks of dress blues and parades and banners flying. He glamorizes war and dreams of conquests. Jesus teaches that the Christian life can be gritty, that it is not for the faint of heart. Bless God that Christians are more than conquerors through him who loved us, but conquer we must. An alluring world, a vigilant devil, our own lust, they're front center, they're all around us. We must wage continual warfare against them. The stony and thorny ground hears they have come to Christ with grand plans to take the world by storm, armed with the cross of Christ. But they sooner or later fizzle, overcome by the temptations and persecutions they find, or sidelined by the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. How many would-be disciples seem to start well that never finish? Where are they now? Let us resolve by God's grace not to be numbered among them. Fourthly, briefly, the cost of following Christ cannot be compared to the cost of abandoning him. The cost of abandoning Christ to return to the world cannot be compared to the reward promised to those who persevere in following Christ to the end. For the AWOL, hell, but for the faithful by the grace of God, heaven. What does it profit a man, even if it were possible, to gain the whole world and to lose his soul? How could he be regarded as a winner? Ask Demas. No, on the second thought, I hope none of you are able to ask Demas. Finally, the, the cost of ca carrying our cross now cannot be compared to the glory to follow. Now, this isn't found in this passage, but it's certainly taught elsewhere. Jesus speaks of the horrifying cost of going AWOL, but there is a reward for the faithful. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17. I'll read three passages and be done. Two from Paul and one from Peter. For momentary light affliction... It's momentary, it's not gonna last forever. It's light, it's not overpowering to us. Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Verse 
It's not worthy to be compared, as Paul goes on to say in Romans 8 and verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, Paul had scars and scabs to prove it. Uh, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. These things seem so overpowering now, but think of them in light of eternity and the glory that's going to be revealed. Finally, Peter, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You faithful followers, by the grace of God, these are the things that you have to look forward to. Oh, may the God that has begun that good work in you, that he would complete it, and you would see all of the precious promises that were bought for bought and paid for by our Christ's holy life and atoning death. They will one day be yours. May none of us in this room fail to lay hold of those things, indeed, that we have been laid hold of by Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, these are indeed very sobering words. Lord, how can we hear them? But Jesus says, he who has ears... Let him hear. So, Lord, give us ears that hear. Give us hearts to believe. Make these things precious to us. How can we consider anything more precious to us than to identify with our suffering Lord? Indeed, if we are his disciples, disciples, when they're made perfect, they're like their master. So, Lord, help us to grow in the grace of of our Savior, the same kind of grace that that brought hatred upon him, that it would not having a martyr's complex, but we want to be those kind of people that are hated for all the right reasons, indeed hated for our identification with Jesus Christ, and that in being hated we might open our mouths to speak of the so great salvation that is found by coming and feasting upon him. Help us in these things, O God, If there's any here that they don't know whether they're a true Christian or not, if they never counted the cost of discipleship, Lord, we pray that you would give them them the faith to lay hold of Jesus Christ this day. And those who are your people, help them to redouble their commitment to serve him who saved them. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.